Welcome. Here at Waterstone, we invite you to find your story within God's bigger story. We are a church that lives for something bigger than ourselves and is passionate to proclaim and demonstrate the way of Jesus. We are currently living through a time of radical shifts in technology, ethics, secular ideologies, and religion. Our culture is increasingly shallow and lonely. Yet, rather than offering an alternative, the Big C Church often remains silent or compromised. In a time of compromise and disillusionment, God is calling his people to a movement of beautiful resistance. We invite you to join us as we walk through the final chapter of the Book of Romans and experience a renewed vision for who the church can be, replacing compromise with conviction. If you would like to visit and attend in person, we would love to have you. Go to waterstonechurch.org to RSVP for a weekend service time on Saturday evening or Sunday morning. These days, there's an uptake in waiting. Waiting for vaccination, waiting for test results, waiting for that letter of acceptance, waiting for that response on the dating app, waiting for the child to come, waiting for that proposal. What are you waiting for this morning? If you're waiting for anything substantial, you kind of figure out that we're not very good at waiting. We are less good at waiting in our culture. I was doing some waiting, uh, some reading on the science of waiting this week and came across an article from The Guardian, a newspaper in the UK. And they did a survey that found that consumers, 32% of consumers survey would only wait for a slow website from between one to three seconds. Reminded me of a story I heard actually on a late night talk show. A comedian was on there and he was telling about being on a flight where one passenger kind of got irate with a flight attendant about how slow the internet was on the plane. The comedian put this in perfect contrast and context. He said, here's this person complaining. They're sitting in a chair 30,000 feet in the air, in a tube experiencing the miracle of flight, on a journey from New York to Los Angeles that used to take six months. We're not very good at waiting. And yet, we are awaiting people. God calls us in Scripture the bride, waiting for the consummation of the covenant. When Jesus returns and the marriage feast begins. You know, every communion service, we use liturgy that actually was given to the church by the Apostle Paul. And the end of that uh, liturgy, I know the first part we know pretty well, and we all know that that space for communion is a time of remembering, and it's a time of great comfort because we recall how our sins have been forgiven and we are promised resurrection. But remember the ending liturgy that Paul gave, that as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death till He comes. While communion should be an encouraging and comforting experience, it also should end as a very 
unsettling experience. So we remember that we're not home yet. So this morning, we're going to talk about waiting. We're going to talk about how in every one of the New, of the, uh, New Testament letters, but particularly in our letter Romans that we're working through, but it's in every letter that what shines through is kind of the bracing ethic that props everything up that we do, even our love, is this promise of Jesus' return. Let's notice it in our text this morning in Romans chapter 13. Please follow as I read these verses, beginning in verse 8 of chapter 13. Paul writes, Let no debt remain outstanding except the continuing debt to love one another. For whoever loves others has fulfilled the law. The commandments, you shall not murder, or you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and whatever other command there may be are summed up in this one command. Love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no harm to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. And do this, do what? Love your neighbor, understanding the present time. The hour has already come for you to wake up from your slumber before, because our salvation is nearer now than when we first believed. The night is nearly over. The day is almost here. So let us put aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us behave decently as in the daytime, not in carousing and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and debauchery, not in dissension and jealousy. Rather, clothe yourselves with the Lord Jesus Christ and do not think about how to gratify the desires of the flesh. The word of the Lord. Now, a few weeks ago, Paul Joslin, our teaching pastor, came up with this brilliant kind of layout of Romans 12 through 16, which we have been preaching through this last week in this series called Beautiful Resistance. And Romans 1 through 11 is the gospel. And in brief, it's that Jesus, the King, the Lord, humbled Himself, came to earth, took on flesh, lived the life we should have lived, died the death we should have died so that our sins can be forgiven and that we can be promised resurrection just like Jesus. That's the gospel. That's the announcement. That's good news. And when we receive that announcement, our response, according to Romans 12, 1 and 2, is that we, in gratitude, offer our lives as a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable, pleasing to God, and being renewed and transformed in our minds so that we understand we're a body. And each of us has been given gifts, skills, and experiences to use in the body of Christ. And that's including our vocations and our daily jobs. All of that God is using to build His kingdom. But we understand we're part of a body and we live that way. And the relationships in the body is that we love the other. We love one another in here and we love the other out there. And that New Testament word we've talked about often is that word hospitality, which literally means loving the stranger and creating an environment where they become friend and family. And then we went last week, Elliot preached this 
magnificent message on the relationship of the believer to the government. And our understanding is that God has ordained government to restrain evil and to promote human flourishing. And as governments restrain evil and promote human flourishing, our default posture is we submit to government as witness to what God's doing. Now when a government does not restrain evil or when they cringe on human flourishing, then at least we speak prophetically to those areas, and at most we defy. But understand that our default position is submission. And then, interestingly, Paul begins to work back through all this again. Today, as you heard in our text, he's going to talk about love. You're here again, the other, where Paul says, love one another and love the other. And I want to talk about that in a moment. And then next week, we're going to talk about the body again. Madison's going to be preaching on how in the body we live in preference to others. Whatever the other's preference is, we honor that. And we'll be talking about next week. And then in chapter 16, we end with the gospel again. Brilliant, brilliant stylistic writing from this lawyer guy named the Apostle Paul. Today, we talk about love. Look, look at verses 8 through 10 again. I won't read them again, but I want you to see what Paul's doing. As we talk about love, let no debt remain outstanding. In other words, this idea of love. And by the way, the word love is used in these two verses four times. And it's that word, you've probably heard it if you've been around church much, agape, which means loving uh, the other, doing what's best for them no matter their response, no matter if there's relationship. You do what's best for the other, whatever the cost. That's the love. That's the love Jesus loved us with. That's why it's remarkable, this agape love. That's why it's the divine love. Because when we wanted nothing to do with God, when we weren't even interested, He loved us and sent His Son for us. That's the love. Doing what's best for the other, no matter the cost, no matter the response. We've received this love vertically, and then God wants it to go out horizontally from us to one another and to the other out there. Four times, he says. But I think what's interesting is what Paul does here as he says, look, it's always been this way. You'll notice he gives four commands from what's called the second table of the Ten Commandments, that love your neighbor part. Don't commit adultery, don't murder, don't covet, don't steal. He's saying that even in the Old Testament, and you know, the Old Testament often gets a bad rap. For There's some hard stuff in the Old Testament. But Paul is saying it's always been love. It's a debt that's never fulfilled, and so we have to figure out how we're going to endure in love. And it's also love is the fulfillment of the law. It's the story. What God wants us doing is receiving his love and loving one another and the other. That's the story. Now this week, we've unpacked this a lot over, if you're new to Waterstone visiting today, the last several messages we've talked about this idea of loving the other. I would invite you to check some of those out. But I did have two more thoughts that I had this week about this idea of Christians and love that I wanted to just briefly share with you. First, I think the idea of God being love, the one who loves us, that's rather unique in world religions. What I want us to see for a moment is just how unique our God is. Around the time that Paul's writing here in around 60 AD, if you went to the academy in uh, Athens or anywhere around the Roman Empire, the academy, one of the classes you would have to take would be philosophy. And one of the 
things you would have to read or hear read to you would be this dude, you've probably studied him in your college philosophy course, Aristotle, 350 B.C. Aristotle had a unique view of God. It went like this. It would be eccentric for any human being to say they love God. And it would be even more eccentric for any God like Zeus to say that they love human beings. Eccentric. Let's fast forward to another world religion. Did you know that in the Quran, the holy book dictated to the prophet Muhammad by God according to their worldview, that not once is the word love, self-giving love, used to describe Allah, the God of Islam. Not once. And now, in contrast, we have Christianity, where in 1 John chapter 4, we read, this is how God showed His love for us. He sent His one and only Son to the world that we might have life through Him. Love. God is unique in the divine cultures. I think it's also interesting to note that this kind of love, agape love, is unique in our culture. And let me just briefly explain in two ways. One, sociologically. There was a great uh, book that recently came out by Robert Putnam and Shailene Garrett called uh, The Upswing. And they just basically explore water, or Waterstone, United States culture, the Western culture, over the last 50 years. Uh, about half the book is really them unpacking a lot of the systems and structures in our culture that have fallen apart. Over the last 50 years, they write, the positive trends have reversed. Membership in civic organizations has collapsed. Political polarization has worsened. I thought I'd get an amen from that. Income inequality has widened. Social trust in institutions has cratered. Religious attendance is down. Social mobility has decreased. Deaths of despair have skyrocketed. And on and on. They, a little later on, they give this kind of unique uh, statistic that, in, as I was reading it, jumped off the page. The frequency of the word I in American books has doubled from 1965 to 2008. Hmm. And then they conclude as they reflect on all this. Starting in the late 1960s, there was a left-wing self-centeredness in the social and lifestyle sphere and a right-wing self-centeredness in the economic sphere with lack of support for common good public policies. But it was socially celebrated self-centeredness all the way across. It was based on a fallacy. And I think in this next sentence, not to overplay my hand here, but I think this next sentence they wrote is the explanation of the demise of our culture. Ooh. It's based on a fallacy. If we all do our own thing, everything will work out well for everybody. Into that kind of culture comes these people who believe they've been loved by God with an other-centered love, 
and they walk into the culture trying to think how they can be creatively weak and give away their stuff and give away their time to do what's best for the other. Can you imagine how that stands out in this culture? So it's not only sociologically. I think it also stands out in our more secular culture. If any worldview is growing in our culture, it's a worldview that I don't know whether there's a God. I don't care whether there's a God. I'm pretty sure there's not a God. That worldview continues to grow in our culture. We are becoming more secular. And I think what's interesting to wrestle with is even the concept of love. Is love a human construct? Think about that. Is love just something that's invented? Is love just something that we've created to kind of hopefully make our life easier? Or is there an objective reason rather than a subjective reason that we should love? I mean, if all we are is a product of random circumstances, how can you actually command someone to love someone else? If all we are are mesmerizing molecules And love a human construct. I mean, how can you enforce love? Into this kind of secular culture come these people who believe they've been loved with and and given other-centered love to give out from Jesus. And we say there's a big reason why we should love others. And it doesn't depend on how I feel. It doesn't depend on my mood. It doesn't depend on anything subjective around me. It's an objective thing. And here's what it is. To quote, I have a Holy Trinity, by the way. You probably figured this out if you're here at Waterstone listening to the preaching. Martin Luther, John Calvin, and Bono, the Holy Trinity. John Calvin today. Scripture helps us in the best way when it teaches that we are not to consider that men, forgive this, this is 16th century language, when that men merit of themselves, but to look upon the image of God in all men, to which we owe all honor and love. Calvin continues, say that he does not deserve even your least effort for his sake, but the image of God, which recommends him to you, is worthy of your giving yourself and all your possessions. It is that we remember not to consider men's evil intention, but to look upon the image of God. Are you getting it? In them. And with its beauty and dignity that allures us to love and embrace them. Into this secular culture walk these people people who say, I don't care what color your skin is. I don't care what country you're from. I don't care what you've done in your past or you're doing in your present. I don't care if you're a liberal or a conservative. We will love you. Why? Because you are a piece of work. God's work. That drives the love. That is an objective reason why we love. All right? May we be a loving community because God is unique in his love and because we believe that every person is made unique by his love. But you and I both know that if we're going to love like that and love the other, love even remarkably like God, people who are against us, that's going to cost. At times, it's going to hurt. At times, it's going to be so disappointing because the response will be resistance. So the question is, where do we get endurance? What spurs us to keep loving the other like this with agape love?
the hope of the second coming of Jesus Christ is what fuels us to be a loving community. Paul puts it in his words in Romans uh, verses 11 and 12. And do this, what? Love your neighbor, this love, understanding the present time. The hour has already come for you to wake up from your slumber because our salvation is nearer now than when we first believed. Hour by hour nearer. The night is nearly over. The day is almost here. So let us put aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. What stands out is the way that Paul uses temporal language, day and night and time, understanding the present time, the hour. What he's saying is that people who follow Jesus know what time it is. All right? So what time is it? Well, you'll remember that when Jesus was crucified, three days later, the only person in human history to do this, he walked out of his own grave by his own power, 40 days, appeared to over 500 people, showed them what resurrection body is like and how it looks to be outfitted for heaven. And then, as the text says in Acts chapter 1, he was hoisted back into the clouds. And as he was going, he said to the church, the same way you see me going... I'm coming back. But don't just stand here. Go. Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the whole world. Get busy. Go. But I'm coming back. It's eschatology. That's a fancy word for knowing the end is near, for the study of last things. But it's eschatology that puts into our spiritual diet this hope that keeps us enduring in love, even when love is hard. Now, this temporal language, all this, what's assumed is that we know what time it is. So as Jesus was hoisted back to heaven, here's the time. We know that when Jesus came the first time, he launched a movement. This movement is called the kingdom of God. He said it's near, it's here, it's moving, it's now. It's penetrated every country and culture in the world. It, it's been gone global, this massive movement. Now well over 2 billion people, followers of Jesus, around the world, this kingdom. And he said that you will keep busy in this kingdom and seeking the kingdom, proclaiming it and demonstrating it, as our mission statement says. But know that one day I will come back and make all things new. So what we know is that we live in this in-between time, right? Here's what time it is. Jesus has already launched the kingdom, but it's not yet here in its fullness. That will happen the moment he returns. So we live in this in-between time. And in this in-between time, you and I also both know, we've experienced it. It's dark. It's dark. <laughs> A couple weeks ago, the power went out here in uh, the church building and about 50 homes over here. And I lived just across the parking lot. I was up at five in the morning. I was working on a message. Complete and utter darkness just like that. Everything went down. And uh, I'm, you know, in our family, Jan's the one who knows where the matches are and where the candles are. I'm scrambling around. I mean, there's literally no light anywhere, not even out in the street, scrambling around trying to find candles. And I confess to you that at least three times I actually flipped on light switches to help me find candles. <laughs> Darkness has power. And it was in complete and utter control. And we, we experienced that in this time, moments of darkness. 
but we also know what time it is, that the candle of resurrection has been lit. And that candle lights the whole house. Now it's not yet here in its fullness. And we know there's a lot of darkness, but the candle's been lit. And that's why what's most real to us is not scheming tyrants angling for power in politics and not the marbled halls of any capital around the world and not anything you'll read tomorrow in the New York Times or any other newspaper. And what's real to us is not those who say might makes right. What's real to us is following this man who loved to have children on his lap, who, who, who loved to eat meals with tax collectors, prostitutes, and sinners, this man who defied human authority, this man who walked to a cross and said, follow me. And then this man, behold the man who walked out of his own grave. Someone once asked the great missiologist, Leslie Newbegin, uh, knowing what's going on in our world, are you an optimist or a pessimist? And Leslie Newbegin said, I am neither an optimist nor a pessimist. Jesus Christ has risen from the dead. That's what time it is. And we live in that time. So you know how we live, right? We live proleptically. Big fancy word. I love that word. I came across it in a book last summer called Scandalous Witness by Lee C. Camp, one of the best books I've read on politics. But he says, knowing where we are in time between the already and the not yet, but the resurrection candle lit, we live proleptically. What does that mean? That means we are so certain of the future that's been promised to us that we experience its implications in the present. We are so certain of the future that we talk about it in the present tense. Now, if you've had kids, you've experienced this, right? I raised two, I, Jan mainly, and I raised two boys, and uh, I won't mention any names, but we had one boy that really was hard to get ready for school. Not because he was lazy, but because he was always doing other things. So we'd be down at the breakfast table, dressed, ready, finished breakfast, I, I almost said his name. I won't, he's on our staff. He works with the youth here. But um, <laughs> I'd holler up, hey, we're leaving. We're in the car. Let's go. And he'd holler down, you're in the kitchen. <laughs> now I would say, I'm speaking proleptically. The future is so sure that you're about to experience the implications in the present. <laughs> We live proleptically. Larry, come on, bring that down more, the abstraction letter. What does that really mean? How do we know, you know, we live, we know what time it is. How, how does that impact the way we live? Uh, two stories. One, a few uh, months ago in Christianity Today, this magazine, there was a letter, uh, an article by uh, Wendy Murray um, Zob, Zobi, and um, she writes about their middle son, Ben, who's in third grade. And uh, over the course of a few weeks, they noticed Ben's behavior was changing. I mean, really well. I mean, he began to read the Bible. He began to pray. They noticed just change in his attitude and disposition. And so Wendy and her husband, the dad, began asking Ben, Ben, what, what's going on? Uh, have you invited Jesus into your life? Do you want to be baptized? And Ben said, no, not yet. And this went on. For a couple months, Ben, you, you just changed. Do you want to be baptized? No, not yet. And then one morning, they were at the breakfast table, 
In the middle of a bowl of Cheerios, Ben leaves the table, goes up to his room. His parents think, okay, wow, something's time. He's going to go up and pray, maybe want us to pray to receive Jesus with him. They get up there to his room, and Ben is packing his Star Wars pajamas into his Sesame Street backpack. And Wendy goes, Ben, why are you packing? And Ben says, I'm ready now. I'm ready to go meet Jesus. Is your bag packed? Are you ready to go meet Jesus? Is your relationship with him such that that strength strengthens all other of your relationships? Is that sense of meeting his beauty at any time bending your behavior at all? Is your bag packed? Say, okay, Larry, I, I get it. That's heavy. I'll give that some thought. But what are you saying? You just want me to sit up in my bedroom, play solitaire, and wait for him to come back? Second story. Jeremiah the prophet, 600 B.C. He already has word from God that big bad Babylon is about to completely take over the last remnant of Israel, that within a year, Nebuchadnezzar will have the city under siege, and basically there will be no more Israel. But then, Jeremiah gets another word. Jeremiah, go by the field at Anathoth. Jeremiah must say, what? Lord, You've already said that Nebuchadnezzar's coming. You already said judgment, the hammer's down. You already said that, you know, we'll no longer exist in a matter of months. And Lord, by the way, have you checked property values around Jerusalem right now? You want me to go buy a field? Here's why. This is what the Lord says. As I have brought all this great calamity on this people, so I will give them all the prosperity I have promised to them. Once more, Fields will be bought in this land of which you say it is a desolate waste without people or animals, for it has been given into the hands of the Babylonians. You see, once you know that the future promised is coming, you don't just sit around and wait for that. You roll up your sleeves and you get to work because you are a walking preview of what's to come now. You know, I see this all over Waterstone. I do. I see it in you. This idea that you know the end is near, whether your personal eschatology, your impending death, or the cosmic eschatology of the return of Jesus. You live it out. I see it. A few years ago, we helped a woman die. Her name was Carrie. And over a 10-year period, she had three fierce battles with breast cancer, but the last one took her. She was in her late 50s. I met with her just weeks before she passed. And with tears, was just sharing how she's going to miss her five-year-old granddaughter. How she was going to miss her daughter. How she was going to miss her husband, Frank. Miss Waters, all her community. That was the hardest part. But she said to me, Larry, I would not trade the last ten years for anything. Because the end is teaching me how to live. I wake up every day thankful to be alive. And what Carrie did was she decided, even with neuropathy in her hands near the end, 
to write four or five letters a day to people all over Waterstone, all over her community, even to her own husband, sent him through the mail who lived with her. Her explanation to me was, I want my last words to be many. (laughs) And on her funeral, her husband walked up onto the stage carrying those letters. You see, when we have hope in a future, we roll up our sleeves and get to work now. I see this in you. I see it in Kaylee Buxton, who you've, we've all heard her story. We've played it out before. She is also in a fierce battle with breast cancer, and it seems she has months left. But next week, she's sitting down with Paul Joslin and Alyssa Frisbee to do a podcast to again share with us what she's learning about life in the face of the end. I see it in the Persichetti family who lost their precious 17-year-old Cassandra. And they long to see her again. And they long to see Jesus. But every day, every week on Thursdays, Stacy Persichetti, Cassandra's mom, is in our food pantry with sleeves rolled up because she's determined to let the actions of Jesus point to the future in heaven. And I see it in Lars and Melanie Richards who one year ago this week lost their 15-year-old son Luke. And they also are preparing a video that they want to share with you, their Waterstone family, about how God has been so present to them in the worst year of their life. I see it in you. You know the end is near, but your sleeves are rolled up and you are at work. Why? Because you've made your choice. See, that's the other part of the language that stands out. If you look at verses 12 and 13 in Romans 13, Paul really talks about This is a contrast of language, night and day, darkness and light. The implication is you've got to choose between darkness or light. There's only two kinds of people in the world, those who Jesus has and those who Jesus doesn't have. And you have to choose which of those you are. Those that Jesus doesn't have because they haven't given themselves yet to him, they walk in darkness, Paul says, and they chase things like uh, drunkenness and they they chase pleasure. They chase sex. And they chase power. That's essentially what these three are. And that says that's darkness. And understand the power of darkness. And that we need to put on the armor of light, Paul goes on to say. Armor. It's that serious, right? Armor is a battlefield. It's this serious. You know, if you, if you lose at business, you'll lose some money. If you lose at people, you'll lose some relationships. But if you are on a battlefield and you lose, that's darkness. That's serious business. Paul says this is serious. So what you need to do is put on the armor of light. You need to, verse 14, clothe yourselves with the Lord Jesus Christ and not think about how to gratify the desires of the flesh. Clothes, right? We all know about clothes. We wear clothes. We know that clothes express who we are. They're part of our identity. We want people to know certain things about us by the way we dress. And Paul says, make sure you wear Jesus Christ as your core identity. That's what you want people to know because you're dressed in him. Harry Potter, right? Maybe think of Harry Potter, the house elf Dobby. Dobby is released from slavery by being given articles of clothes and when Harry Potter gives him a sock, Dobby says, Dobby has heard of your greatness, sir, but of your goodness, Dobby never knew. 
we have heard of the greatness of Jesus Christ. But His goodness, He went to the cross naked, shame, abused, so that we could be clothed in forgiveness and love. He took on the garments of our sins so that He could clothe us in His righteousness. You don't believe in God today? I guarantee you're clothing yourself in something. My question to you, is it working? For all that you're carrying, is it working? You know, Augustine, in the 5th century, one of the great church fathers, he was living the life that Paul described there. Sex, money, power. In his 20s, he was living it, the high life. But yet, his heart was restless, he said, yearning. And one day he was walking near his hometown, and he heard a voice, a child's voice. And the voice said, take and read. Augustine didn't know what to think of that. He thought it might have been the voice of God, so he found a Bible. He opened the Bible, and the first words that he said and read were these. Romans chapter 13, let us behave decently as in the daytime, not in carousing and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and debauchery, not in dissension and jealousy. Rather, clothe yourself with the Lord Jesus Christ and do not think about how to gratify the desires of the flesh. And Augustine walked into the kingdom of God. Jesus is extending that offer to you this morning. Whatever you're carrying, whatever you're clothing yourself with, to try and fix your restless soul. Jesus says, pick up and read. Clothe yourself in Jesus, the one who went to the cross to clothe us in his righteousness. You know, we are a waiting people, right? We don't like to wait, but we are a waiting people. And um, we're a bride, God says the only human relationship that even comes close to the kind of intimacy He wants to have is that between a husband and a wife. We are His bride. He's waiting for us. We're waiting for Him. And that moment when He comes, He's dressed us in white. We're ready for that party. Jonathan Edwards, near the end of his life, described it this way, that moment. The creation of the world seems to have been especially for this end, that the eternal Son of God might obtain a spouse towards whom He might full exercise the infinite benevolence of His nature and to whom He might, as it were, open and pour forth all that immense fountain of condescension, love, and grace that was in His heart and that in this way God might be glorified. Would you take the communion elements in hand? And those of you at home, would you please take the elements in hand? Our Lord Jesus, on the night He was betrayed, He took bread, He broke it, and He said, this bread represents my body, which was broken for you. As often as you eat it, remember me. In the same way, after the Passover supper, he took the cup 
And he said, this cup represents my blood, which is poured out for you, a new covenant for the forgiveness of sins. As often as you drink it, remember me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death till He comes. During this last song that we sing in worship of Jesus, around the back of the room there are stations for prayer. Our mission is to be a people empowered by the presence of Jesus. And one of the main ways we experience presence is through prayer. So this morning, if anything's been prompted by the Holy Spirit that may have come to your mind, maybe a relationship that's hurting you, maybe a decision you need to make, maybe you just want to pray for an infusion of eschatology into your spiritual walk, whatever it is, whatever the Lord might lay on your heart, we invite you to leave your spot while you're singing. Just go back to the back of the room. Someone will be there, can pray together with them. Let's experience God's presence together. Let's stand and let's sing. Worship to Jesus.